I want to take you to probably one of the more important epistles that uh, Paul wrote. <clears throat> it's fundamental to our faith. And this is by far my favorite, uh, my favorite book, Past the Gospels. Um, the book of Romans, by the way. Um, and a little bit of background here. This is around maybe 20-something years after Jesus died and rose again that the church is expanding, and it's expanded all the way to Italy. I meant to look up how far Corinth was from Rome, but I don't think it was that far. But Paul was writing this letter to the believers in Rome from his time in Corinth while he was doing ministry there. He had never been to Rome. He hadn't been to Rome. This is a church he, had, he, he did not start. Um, he had never been there on site. He hadn't, as far as I know, had any direct communication with anyone in the church. He had only gotten reports. But he's also writing, when you read this, he's correcting some things that, that people have told what he was preaching. And he says, no, I, I, I haven't preached that. I haven't explained that you live it out that way. So he's doing a little bit of a correction of some of the reports of, well, the Apostle Paul says you can do this. And he said, no, I didn't say that. <clears throat> so he's got that mixed in. He tells them in this letter that he wants to come see them one day on his way to Spain. That it's his intention to take the gospel to Spain. He never makes it to Spain. He does make it to Rome, but not as a freed man, as a prisoner. And he does meet some of the people there. He's under house arrest. It's under a, 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 initially, it's a loose uh, kind of security. He, has, he can have people come in and visit him. So some of them came and visited him. But he never got to Spain, and he got to Rome that one time. Now, I'm going to start looking at chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to go back into chapter 2. But here's the way the NIV reads in Romans 3.1. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? He's really pressing the point, and he's talked about Jews and Gentiles already in chapters 1 and 2, especially in chapter 2. We're going to go back to chapter 2. But he's really kind of pointing out, so, so he's a Jewish person, so he's asking a question, so what advantage do we have? You see, he answers that question, if you, if you read just a little bit further. He says, here's the advantage that Jewish people have. Much in every way, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God, the oracles of God. In the uh, message, verse 1 starts off, what difference does it make who's a Jew and who isn't? Who has been trained in God's way and who hasn't? As it turns out, it makes a lot of difference. First, there's the matter of being in charge of writing down and caring for God's revelation. Think about this. 
the scroll that Jesus took in his hometown synagogue and unrolled it to where Isaiah 61 is located was written and recorded by one of the scribes on a long line of scribes. From the time that Isaiah had written this hundreds of years before, there had to be copy after copy after copy after copy. And all through that copy and all through those uh, generations of caring for God's word, he said those people knew the word. They knew what Isaiah talked about. They knew what David wrote in Psalms. They knew the Torah, which is the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, <clears throat> the Pentateuch, that's the law, the Torah. So he says, here's the advantage of Jewish people. For years, they've been exposed to the gospel through the Old Testament, through God's revelation, <clears throat> the oracles of God. Now, just a historical thing here. Um, you know the Dead Sea Scrolls predate Jesus. They predate Jesus. By a couple hundred years. Also what predates Jesus is this. Um, <clears throat> the emperor of Egypt in the third century commissioned 72 scholars to take the Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament, and translate it into Greek. And that's what's called the Septuagint. And they finished it around 132 B.C., before Jesus. So there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament in G before Jesus came along. So he had to have known something about it. There's a lot of Jewish people that were so affected by the culture, the Greek culture, that they knew Greek without knowing Hebrew. So they, they had the, the Greek rendering of the Old Testament. And all of this, <clears throat> it was entrusted to the Jewish people to take care of the copying of that Bible, the Old Testament. And he says, now here's the... Here's the advantage that Jewish people have. They have access to a revelation that Gentiles haven't had. But it's amazing what he follows that up. But I want to take you back, and we're going to start back in verse 9. <clears throat> Excuse me. There will be trouble and distress for every human being. This is Romans 2.9. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. Now, the Jew is first in two things. They're first in getting the revelation, but they're also first in being accountable for it. And this is what he's getting at. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, because they have that revelation, and then for the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good first for the Jew, and then for the Gentiles. For God does not show favoritism. Now, it shows like he does show favoritism, but he doesn't show favoritism. He requires more of the Jewish people than he does the Gentile people because they have access to the revelation of God. Now, watch this. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law, who's that? Gentiles. All of those who haven't had that, who haven't been to Sabbath meetings every Saturday in their hometown synagogues, that haven't heard Isaiah read, haven't heard Moses read, he says, so they don't have that. They don't have that beacon of light 
that they grew up with. He says, all who sin without that will also perish apart from the law. But all who sin under the law while they had this revelation will be judged by the law. And here he makes a distinction, and this is, this is what should give everybody encouragement. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now watch this. It's just not obeying rules. Listen to how he explains this, and he puts this in parenthesis. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have access to the revelation of God, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law unto themselves or for themselves, even though they do not have the law. In other words, it goes deeper than what they've heard here. It's something they've discerned in here. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, their minds, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. In other words, there's some place in these people's lives that they come under conviction about their life. And they're responding to God as though, even though they haven't heard the law, it's being revealed inside of them. So this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So then he starts talking about the Jews and the law. Let me jump ahead back into uh, chapter 3, where he says, first of all, they've been trusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Or the, I think some translation says the faith of God. Watch this. Jews have this revelation What if some of them do not have faith? Will their lack of faith, being God's chosen people, make God's faithfulness any less? And the answer is what? No. It's not God's fault. (laughs) They're not responding to it. It's not his. He's given them the truth, but he explains it's not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. Have you ever heard that? Where have you heard that from? You know what? This is the motto of a magazine that like, people like to come by your house and give to you. The Watchtower. That's their motto. <laughs> it is. And it's, it's strange how they apply it. Because I remember, you know, them stopping at our little mobile home when I was a, just a volunteer helper at a little home missions church in Chiefland, Florida, and they came to our little, our mobile home set right next to the church, Faith Chapel in Chiefland, Florida. Knock on the door, we'd like to give you, and there was the watchtower. And I said, hold it right there. I ran back in the house, and I got a Pentecostal evangel, and I came out, and I said, I'll swap with you. How's that? I'll trade you magazines. And they saw Pentecostal on that evangel. They was like, oh, no, no. And I said, well, I will definitely read yours if you'll read mine. We'll just swap. No, that's the words of man. I says, so the watchtower just dropped out of the sky? 
y'all, how did you print this? And he says, well, uh, we, have the, we have the truth. I says, well, what if you don't? And so they were ready to leave. But their motto is that, let God be true and all of everybody else but Jehovah's Witnesses be liars. <laughs> That's how they apply it. But the application here is, if you disagree with God or you're not up to where he's at, guess who's wrong? Let him be true no matter what people think. You know, there, he says there's people who are interpreting Scripture to excuse their sin. This, he said, this is what he's getting at. He even points this out more clearly later. There's people who says, well, you know, if grace is a good thing to get, then if you sin more, you get more grace. So let's just sin. So we can have more forgiveness. And he said, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work. But this was being pushed around like giving people license to, to, to not, you know, leave their sin. God's grace, you just keep getting grace after grace after sin after sin. And he's boiling it down to that one statement that God be correct and everybody else wrong. Because he is the last voice and he's the last uh, voice of truth. Now watch this. So it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak or prevail when, you're, when, when you judge. And that's a reference to God. So that God is proved right in his judgment. But if, but if our unrighteousness, and, and it's almost, I want you to follow this with me. because This is, this is neat stuff here. It's almost, Paul almost sounds like he's having a debate within himself. Because he's giving these possibilities. If some say this, but he's kind of like responding to them out of his own soul. So watch this. He's saying, if our unrighteousness... You see how he's putting himself in the middle of the discussion. Watch this. If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bringing his wrath upon us? In other words, why would God judge us if that happens? I am using a human argument here, he said. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? In other words, if if it's just part of the cycle, then why would God hold us accountable? And so he's dispelling this argument that it's okay to sin because that's what grace is for. Our unrighteousness, well, you know, God's righteousness covers that. So we can just kind of leave it out that way. He says, that's not the way it works. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? He's following the same logic, isn't he? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, this is one of the things that he's correcting. He says, I've not said this, but listen to him as being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. Boy, that's kind of strong language, isn't it? He says, we haven't said that. Just the opposite. The life-changing revelation of God delivers us from sin's bondage. So go to verse 9 with me. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. 
We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. Now, what, what makes that statement kind of unique? We don't know exact makeup of the church in Rome. It probably had a few Gentiles and a few Jewish people in it. And so maybe these discussions are going on inside this new birth of, of a community of faith. Don't even know how large the church was. But he, he just kind of groups them all together. Why is that significant? Yeah, why, why did he say that everybody, the Jews and the Gentiles, are alike under sin? Out of those two groups, who should be able to claim that they have an advantage there? Jews. And he's even asked that question. Then what advantage does a Jewish person have? And he says they have access to the revelation. But if they don't follow that revelation, they're under greater condemnation. And he basically says, it's not whether you're a Jewish person or a Gentile person. If you have sinned, you're in the same boat. Neither one of you have an advantage. You don't have an advantage because you have a biological connection to Abraham. If anything, you are at a greater disadvantage because you should know better. So he's kind of grouping <clears throat> where, you know, most of the time Jewish people looked on Gentiles people as, as dirty and, you know, they couldn't bump up to them in a market, they had to go and wash their arm and they just, they looked upon them as lower inferior people. And here Paul, a very devout Jewish man at one time, is kind of grouping them all in the same category. Now what he does next is really interesting. I don't know how your translation is, but from as it is written in verse 10 all the way to verse 18, <clears throat> it's quoted, it's quotations of Scripture. Do you see that? All right. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to go back and tell you where these are coming from. There is no one righteous, not even one. Now, is he backing up what he just said? That Jews and Gentiles are both under sin. He said it's written. God has already written where? It's in the Old Testament. A book, a collection that was over 400 years old, that all still applies. They didn't leave the Old Testament to form the, the church or the New Testament. The Old Testament was is part of the church. And he's, the New Testament wasn't formed yet. It wasn't even near being completed. It would be another 30 to 40 years when John would write Revelation. And even after that, the books didn't just all of a sudden come together like a puzzle. There was years where people had decided, are these inspired, is this inspired of God? Well, what's the qualification that makes it inspired of God? And they had to work that way through that until about 300 B.C. when they said, this is the canon of Scripture. This is the New Testament. These are the books in the New Testament that make up the inspired Word of God. But you, do you see how important the Old Testament was during that time? 
Because they didn't have a New Testament. They didn't have a manual. They, they didn't have the words of Jesus in a journal that they read to everybody. It, was, it had to be communicated in that way. So watch this. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats, this is such uplifting stuff, isn't it? (laughs) Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace. They do not know there is no fear of God before their eyes. Amen. Makes you feel better about it. Right? You realize there's one, two, three, four, five, six different places in the Old Testament he's pulling this out of. These are not just all one location. Most of them come from Psalms. One comes from Isaiah. And that's it. David. All right, here, here is Paul making a great argument why the Old Testament's important. And why of all people, the Jewish people he's talking to, ought to know this. They ought to know what God has said about human tendencies to sin. The depravity of the human soul. That there's no one who seeks God. There's no one worthy in themselves of God's grace. Don't hold on to your Jewishness as though it gives you an exemption. And not that that would apply to any of us. But it may possibly be that we get to the point that our longevity in the kingdom of God exempts us. From maybe, you know, volunteering to work in child care. No, I've done my part. There's no one righteous. No, not one. <laughs> it just goes to show you that we can all can kind of get to a place. Someone called me today and, and, and was asking for prayer and, um, and asked me uh, if, if I thought they might be demon, have an evil spirit or something. And I said, well, first of all, I don't think you'd be asking me if you had an evil spirit, if you had an evil spirit. Because evil spirits don't, allow people who have, have control of someone, say, by the way, you know, I have an evil spirit. You know, the, the evil spirit's not going to let them say that. But I did say this. But you can have a bad attitude. <laughs> you can cop a bad attitude. And I can cop a bad attitude. And we can have a bad attitude. And that's a, you know, I call it a bad spirit. Not an evil spirit. We can... And I said, but here's the thing. We've got to trust God no matter how we feel. And we had prayer together. I said, there's, there's people who debate this. There's people who's debated this. It's not as much on the debate as it was back in the charismatic times where some people was doing really weird stuff and asking people to, to, to vomit in bags and get rid of demons. It's, I mean, there, there was some really weird stuff going on in the 70s and 80s. And it was just... You know, God was doing a lot of stuff, and when God does a lot of stuff, a lot of people manufacture something. And, you know, there was a lot, yeah, you can have an evil spirit. No, if you're born again, washed in the blood of Jesus, you can't be possessed by an evil spirit, but, but you can be influenced by darkness. 
And you can be influenced in a place that you are, you don't have light shining on that. And, you, and, and people excuse stuff like that. Well, that's just the way I am. You know, I'm hot-tempered. I got a short fuse. Well, get a longer fuse. <laughs> and, and elongate your, your temper a little bit. Don't have a, sh- a short fuse or a bad temper. The, uh, if, if you have the power of God and the grace of God upon your life, and man, doesn't that put us all in a place that we have to say, if I know Jesus, I should handle some things a lot better than the way I handle them. Is, is that what we ought to be able to say? And not like run around, excuse me, well, you know, I have this problem, but they overeat. <laughs> At least I'm not a glutton. I might choose somebody out for not, you know, doing something, but I'm not like them. I'm not smoking a drink. I think they smoke. You know, what, what is that? We, we compare ourselves with, with other people. We're not, I, I, he, what he's saying is, if you think you have an advantage over someone else, you don't. No matter your history or your track record, how long you've been in the faith. And this is what he's addressing. And he's, he's really saying to the Jewish people, they recognize these verses. Just like when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? The soldiers may have thought one thing, but the Jewish people said, he's quoting a psalm. They knew exactly what was going on. And we may think that, we may say from that he, he felt God was, had deserted him, but we don't know that for sure, do we? Because he was quoting a psalm. He might have felt that way, but the Jewish people heard a messianic quote from the, the psalms, and that had to kind of, leave them perplexed that here he is hanging on a cross quoting one of the Psalms. And he's speaking to a church in the first century that's got obviously Jewish people in it because he wouldn't be saying all this. And they said, well, that's, that comes from that Psalm. That comes from Psalm 14. That comes from Psalm 5. That comes from Psalm 10. That comes from Psalm 36. Oh, that's Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. And so all the, he's pushing all, the, and all these verses are letting them know that no one has, no one has an exemption about doing wrong or about sin. And then he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. In other words, your, your defenses are taken away. And the whole world held accountable to God. There's a little book in my office called Culture Without Accountability. And Jim has seen some of it. But the whole book talks about owning your mistakes. And you remember a few years ago, a pitcher was working on a perfect game in the ninth inning with two outs and a close play at first base. And the first base umpire, Jim Joyce, called the runner safe. And he got the next out, did not get a no-hitter, did not get a... There's only been like 20 perfect games 
ever. And the replay showed that the runner was, it wasn't even a close play. He was obviously out. And the manager of that pitcher ran by Jim Joyce and said, Jim, you blew it. The guy was out. Go see the video. And the account goes that Jim Joyce went in the umpire's locker room, watched the replay, and was brokenhearted. And when the manager came in, he, he apologized, and he says, is it possible for me to talk? I think the guy's name was Galarraga. Is it possible for me to talk to him? And the pitch, he went and got the pitcher, and he, with weeping, he told the guy he was sorry that he had blew the call. But he owned it. He held himself accountable. He could, he could have just like, well, you know, that's part of the game. You know, as the human element is just part of the game. That is not our nature, is it? To own it. <laughs> when we mess up, says, I messed up. And this is what he's talking about is that I think, I think part of repentance is just being honest with God. And the word confess is an interesting word. It it's, comes from two words, homo legeo. Homo meaning same, lego, legeo meaning to say. And it means that you say the same thing. And when you confess who you are to God, then you're coming to the same conclusion God has come to. Are you following me? You're in agreement with God that we're lost, and that what we've done is sin. And Lord, you see that it's sin. You're not seeing it my way. I need to see it your way. And when we see it his way, it's easy for us to repent. Because we're not, no longer trying to excuse what we're doing because we have this little glitch in our lives and this little problem that we have in our lives. When we realize that we are wrong in something, how we look at it is wrong. And we confess that to God. We're admitting that he's right and we're wrong. And in that confession, what does it say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And, and it's still the same word there. It's homo legale. If we, confess, if we say the same thing about our sins to him, he recognizes that and he honors that and he forgives us and cleanses us from all of it. Because he knows we owned it. And this is what he's getting at. Held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Later on, Paul says, how would I have known that I shouldn't covet something if I didn't know that there was a commandment, thou shalt not covet? <laughs> and there's this wonderful quote by C.S. Lewis. When he talked about one of his, one of his uh, ways of saying there can't be a God is that he looked at the cruelty of the world and he says uh, there just cannot be a God when there's so much, that's, um, so much injustice and there's so much wrong. And then he realized, why would I even think about something not being just? If there's no God to say something is wrong, how can, how can anybody say that anything is wrong? 
And Andrew Clavin says, if you take evolution down to its basic core, then who says murder's wrong or rape is wrong? Do we take a vote on it? Or is there inside of us a law that says these things are wrong? And it's because God has created us in his image. And we know when something's wrong. That's why when you ask little Junior, did he hit his sister? He's saying, Adam is coming out. (laughs) No, I didn't touch her. My brother was five years older than me, and he thought it was his business to take out all of his frustration on his younger brother. And I went crying to mother one time, and she's watching her and says, he choked me. And she called him in there, and he said, I didn't touch him. And she says, Johnny, your finger marks are around his neck. And he looks and says, well, he did something, you know, she's like, you know, I didn't touch him. But isn't that a little bit of our tendency? Like, oh, I didn't do that. I didn't say that. And this is what he's getting at. We, we know we're wrong. He said, the, the consciousness of sin. I want to finish this up real quick. But can I end just encouraging you to dive into Romans at some time? When, when um, Robert Morris was talking about going through Ephesians, I thought, what a great book. How could you not love Ephesians? But you better slide Romans ahead of Ephesians. (laughs) It is the book that started the Protestant Reformation. Because that monk over in Germany that realized that he wasn't justified by absolution of his sins and confessing to another priest, he was justified because Jesus died for his sins and was raised from the dead. And thus Martin Luther cranked up the Reformation. But it goes like this. I'll finish this up. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, which has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. What he's saying is the Old Testament testifies as this. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. We're all in the same boat, but salvation applies to all of us who believe. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. We, we, we quote 23, but you know it's not a sentence all to itself. There's a part of the sentence before and there's a part of the sentence after. Watch what it says afterward. And are justified freely by his grace. Yes, we're falling short of the glory of God, but in salvation, look what's We've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation, a covering for our sin through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed before him unpunished. In other words, God knew that all generations leading up to the cross, there was sin. So he didn't punish, he did not punish them and didn't hold that ready to just lower the boom on them because he waited because the covering for that is coming. That way, how, were, how was people saved before the cross? Justified by faith in the promise of God. There was no transformation. There was, there was no rebirth of their soul. 
They just simply believed, and in believing, they were justified by faith. But they're believing whatever the, the focus was, was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or the Passover, all of these things that God put in front of them and says, these are pictures of my son who's coming to die for you. All the sacrifices, all of the, every lamb that was killed every day for some type of remission of wrong, all pointed to Jesus. So when they f- believed in that, it was like forward-looking. And he says he held off punishing those generations, knowing they didn't have a full revelation. But the full revelation was coming. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And I like the next question. I'm going I'm to stop right there. So where's the boasting? Who can brag? He said, there is none. What does it say? It's excluded. So if we boast, we have to boast in the person of Jesus. All of of this is a reminder to us, and I think it's kind of neat when you're reading this, you're you're reading something that he's writing at the time. This is, this is the way I look at the Bible, that I haven't met the Apostle Paul yet. I will one day, but I get to hang out with him. And I didn't, did not ever get to meet Keith Green, but me and Keith Green, we have a, we have a concert most mornings or some, most of the days. I get to hang out with Keith Green. I get to hang out with the Apostle John. You know, John and I are getting pretty close. You know, I, I, I wish we would look at it as not reading a book and of, a, of years past, but a living, breathing book that speaks to us today very personally. And I think if we read it that way, you'll start hearing God talking to you, kind of like Robert Mars talking about it. hearing hearing what God has to say and what he speaks to you. Would you stand with me?